On this episode of Resi Week, Roku's got a smart soundbar, Sonance acquires James Loudspeaker, and CD is next generation workforce. All this and more on this episode of Resi Week. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is Resi Week episode 188, State Approved. Support for AV Nation is brought to you by Draper and by Crestron. Welcome to Resi Week. This is your weekly wrap-up of all the latest news and information for the residential AV industry. I'm your host, Matty Scott, and today I am pleased to be joined by Jason Griffin. He works for One Vision Resources. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Matt. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to uh, be on with you again. And we've got Joe Whitaker. He is the CEO of Thoughtful Integrations. How are you, sir? Doing well. Thank you for having me again. Thank you so much for uh, ducking out of a meeting uh, at CDA Expo to join us for a little bit. Tis the season. Tis the season. It is. Uh, thanks for taking the time. I know how busy it is. Yeah, of course. Happy to be here. Well. Um, let's, let's kick this off with, uh, we'll jump into some stories in a second, but first I wanted just to, uh, to make mention if you missed it a couple of days ago, Ruth Spira, the co-founder of Lutron, unfortunately passed away. Uh, she helped start the company in their spare bedroom in their NYC apartment way back in the sixties and ha- had been involved in the company really, uh, up until the, the time that she passed away. So our condolences to her family and the, the the Lutron family as a whole, as a as a Lutron dealer, if you've listened to the show, you probably are aware of that. I've got a, a ton of, I don't have stories from her. I, I never, unfortunately, got a chance to meet her, but I've heard tons of stories from from Lutron friends and employees about both both Ruth and Joel. And it's a, it's a sad day. Those those titans of our industry are you know, really starting to disappear. We're starting to lose a lot of them. And that is uh, obviously very, very sad to hear. On another note, uh, let's kick this right off with a bunch of news, uh, some coming out of Expo, some not. This comes to us from Residential Tech Today. Roku has a a device you probably aren't expecting necessarily from them. They have a smart sound bar that is coming into play. It is a two channel speaker that's going to feature Dolby Audio as and include four full range uh, speakers, each powered by a separate amplifier. The big point of this is that this is a quote unquote streaming speaker and not only will have uh, Wi-Fi connectivity as well as Bluetooth and a bunch of other fun things on it, it is going to have a bunch of access to the Roku library of apps. Jason, let me uh, start with you on this one. Um, when I look at this, this this is an interesting product for me. It's not something that necessarily lives in our, our world, but it might be a really good solution for those auxiliary rooms. The bigger takeaway that I had from this, though, was they're packing a ton of technology into this. Nobody's heard it. Nobody knows what it sounds like, but they're packing a ton of technology into the speaker. What is the, the advancements that they're making in in a, a speaker platform mean for the for the industry in general like this is a what is it a 180 speaker yeah yeah 100, 100, 179 
and they've got a companion uh, wireless subwoofer uh, for one hundred and seventy nine dollars as well. Like it's yeah, insane. so yeah, the the it, it's just a, a continuation of of the trend, of course, that we've seen in the industry for many many years now, in terms of the the proliferation of more consumer focused and inexpensive types of devices. And as you alluded to, Matt, I mean, there are certainly limitations to this product in terms of how practical or useful it's going to be in a lot of scenarios that, that your audience and professional integrators in general will be encountering. But uh, like you alluded to, it could be a great solution for sort of auxiliary rooms and certainly for consumers. I mean, it's, it's a great value. And I think the most interesting thing to me is, is this broader trend of how we're seeing the streaming functionality really make its way into uh, mm -hmm. lots and lots of different devices, in, including most prominently probably the TVs themselves. And so over on the Home Tech podcast that, that I do weekly, we talk about this frequently in this concept that, that we sort of call input zero and how TVs are just sort of trending towards this place where ultimately you kind of hook it up and you throw it on the wall and you plug a network into it and, and you're off to the races with, with all of your different apps and, and content. So this is kind of an extension of that where the streaming functionality is now being built uh, right into a soundbar. Um, seems to make a lot of sense. The big question, of course, at that price point is, is going to be the sound quality. But um, at $179, presumably people buying it aren't expecting it to be uh, like a B&W or, or some sort of ultra high performance piece. They're looking for that that more affordable type of functionality. And and it seems like it's going to fit a bill certainly for a lot of people, especially when you pair it up with that companion subwoofer. Mm -hmm. What I always find interesting about these conversations is, as you just alluded to, Will it sound the same as a B&O? Probably not. How many people need it to sound like a B&O? Right? If, right. You're, if you're just needing to add some form of speaker to your TV that has micro mini speakers that sound like dirt, at what point is this just fine? Will it sound as good as a, you know, like a Sonos Beam or a Play Bar? Who knows? We won't, we won't know till we see that uh, and get to hear it, but it's a very interesting aspect of, Hey, here's a, you know, was that workout to $360? Yeah. And you can have a, a really nice little two piece, three channel system that can add into any room. Yeah. Yeah. Now, at what point is that good enough? Right. Becomes the question. And that's going to vary for, for everybody. And I, I've heard it said once many years ago that with speakers truly are one of those things where you just, you look at the price point and you can generally tell uh, the quality that you're getting because a lot of speakers comes down to, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not a speaker engineer, but a lot of it comes down to the materials and what, what these speakers are built out of. And of course, how much engineering goes into all of that um, is, is clearly reflected in the price point. So again, I, I, I don't think you're going to get, you know, the, the sound quality on, on this thing isn't going to knock you, uh, you know, knock you out of your socks, but it, it's going to be good enough for their target target market. And I think the success will really come down to, uh, just the ease of deployment and, and of course, how many people out there are truly looking for that versus maybe for those people, literally the built-in TV speakers are good enough at that point. Joe, when we look at this uh, smart speaker, it, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, as Jason alluded to, it could be used in aux rooms. Is that something where, you know, we really do need just a, a cheap, effective, product that maybe the Roku can fit in? Well, you know, yes, I, I would have to say yes. But what I find intriguing about it and important <clears throat> from an integrator side, you know, I'm taking the integrator side on this and saying that it doesn't matter what system you're using, 
But if you look at streaming players overall, you know, Apple TV, Fire TV, Roku players are natively more friendly to mm-hmm. work with any control system. You know, the, the Roku TVs, the Roku players himself, but we've never had an audio solution where Pandora's built into it and all of that, kind of like a Sonos, but one that is all inclusive and works amazing with just about any control system. Do we need a cheap soundbar? Yes, we do, because you have the other entries in there like Den and Heos, uh, Sonos and all of those where, you know, your starting point is 600 bucks and you gotta have another six or seven for the sub. Now we have an integrator friendly, cost-effective solution to get away from the cheap speakers built into TVs. Let's just be honest about it. Now we actually have a way to do that. But it actually adds some of the technology that, because you can go buy a $150 LG soundbar, but it doesn't do anything. It's just a soundbar. This gives flexibility. Very cool. So we will have to keep an eye on that. And I'm, I'm highly looking forward to seeing it and hopefully hearing it when it actually comes out. I want right. Roku to build some more things too. Build me some more things to play with on your platform. Ooh, I wonder if we know anyone there. Let's have a conversation. Let's have a conversation. All right, gentlemen, let's move on to our next story of the day. I, I must say, most acquisitions I kind of expect, I kind of see coming to some degree. Either uh, you know the company is looking, they're, they're active in that space, in the M&A space, uh, or the, the manufacturer is, or, or the, the company being acquired is in a financial situation. They're not really innovating. It's, it's very rare that something pops up that makes you go, whoa, I mm-hmm. did not see that coming. This was one of those situations. Sonance, and uh, this comes to us uh, also from Residential Tech today, Sonance is going to acquire James Loudspeaker. If you don't know who Sonance is, what are you doing in this business? Uh, they're essentially the, really the, the innovator who put architectural speakers on the map and, and made them a commonplace product for our industry. If you don't know James Loudspeaker, they make some very fantastic speakers but specifically are, are highly focused on the fit and finish and do a, a massive amount of custom work. So Jason, I would assume that this caught you off guard as much as it caught uh, myself off guard. When you, when you look at this, this is a interesting match for me. I would not have, as I said, I, w- I was not expecting Sonys to go after a, uh, another company, but more importantly, another audio speaker manufacturer. It's a bit of an interesting hit for me. Um, and as the article states, Mark, their, uh, their, uh, James's CEO, said that they weren't for sale. This really was just an off-the-cuff chance encounter, and all of a sudden, the deal has been made. What do you, what do you see for, for both companies in this situation? Where do you see this mm-hmm. going? Yeah, I, I have to say I was, on one hand, a little surprised by it, mostly in the sense that you alluded to, where it's two speaker companies that have, you know, by their very definition, a, a fair amount of overlap in the core types of products that they're offering. Um, so that was a little bit surprising. And I did read the article where Mark was very emphatically saying we were not for sale, uh, which I found, you know, found interesting. Uh, clearly, they were. It must have been a, a good offer. Um, on the other hand, I, I didn't find it super surprising, and I, I can only speculate. I, of course, have no idea what the, the motivation was behind this, 
this acquisition, but one of the things that, again, we've been talking about on the show that I do is that what, what are other companies going to do in response to the continued um, consolidation, especially by Snap AV and how big they're getting and, and buying everything else up? Um, how do other companies respond? And, and Sonance is certainly not a, a small company and James has been around for a really long time. And, and so you, you just have to wonder, uh, again, I have no idea, but you got to wonder if, if that had something to do with it and these companies need, you know, other companies in the industry now need to start looking uh, to combine forces to, uh, to work together and, and protect and grow market share. So, you know, that was a little bit curious to me. I can say from my former experience as an integrator, had a lot of experience with both of these companies. They're both great. Uh, they both make really great products. I have nothing but good things to say about them. I know that uh, Sonance always did a really good job of, of making the process easy and they had a lot of different models to fit sort of any budget or specification. And then James was really one of our go-tos for a more boutique, uh, mm -hmm. like you said, specialized fit and finish. Um, I did at the time find James's ordering process and part numbers all to be a little bit more confusing. And I remember thinking like, man, they could make this, they could just be more like Sonance, right? Sonance makes it very easy. Their model numbers were very, always very easy for me to follow. Uh, as a specifier. So, you know, maybe they can bring some of those forces together and really leverage some of the great things that James does in terms of fit and finish. And then of course the build quality of Sonance um, and how well that that company and data innovations in general have done in terms of just being a really integrator friendly, installer friendly uh, product. So I'll be interested to see what these two companies are able to, to do together. Joe, when you look at this, it, this is a question that really hit me more than anything when I looked at this. I didn't think Sonance, as I mentioned, I didn't think Sonance needed to buy anyone. I, I, I wasn't, there, nothing in my head went, yes, yeah, Sonos really needs to buy another speaker manufacturer. They already manufacture a lot of speakers. But when you, when you look at this, is, is this a situation where they wanted potentially some IP? They wanted that custom aspect that James is, is well known for? Or is it something where, they needed to be or wanted to be a conglomerate, a, a bigger company with more offerings, more flexibility as far as what they can offer to continue to compete against the likes of all the other big conglomerates that are happening. Because we keep seeing this. We keep seeing companies go after people. Do you have to be a conglomerate to compete? You know, yes, we're, we're, we're living in the era in our industry of acquisitions. Everybody is acquiring everybody. Mm -hmm. Pretty soon, you know, you'll go into the show floor and it's just going to be one brand that owns all the other brands. It's going to happen. But this one was unique to me because I see it as very strategic. And another company a couple of years ago made a move like this. And that was when Leon acquired Terra, mm -hmm. right? So you're, you're, you're acquiring a speaker brand with you know, respect, longevity, but that operates in a different vertical of speakers. One, you know, that would be attractive to your catalog that would give more solutions to your, your dealers and, and those who are installing your products. This was a strategic move that to uh, allow Sonance to be an all-inclusive model. You know, you see partnerships of Savage with uh, Artisan. You see Control 4 bought Triad and now is acquired by another company that also has another speaker company. You know, the, these are those strategic moves where it's like, I don't have to be a conglomerate, but I do need to have a catalog that has all the pieces of a single vertical. Mm -hmm. 
them picking James, not, not, you know, a surprise to me. I would have thought it would have been a James or a Revel or an Artisan or, or one of those brands that are known for boutique high-end, really good-looking, really good-sounding um, towers and other speakers that they were totally missing from their catalog. Is it a sign? Yes, it's a sign that more of our, and you can't call so, uh, Sony, it's one of the smaller companies. They are pretty no. much the largest architectural speaker manufacturer. But you look at that, and it's an eye-opener to us that those who own a category or almost own a category know that they now have to fill their missing gaps to continually own that spot. Yeah. Uh, when you've got companies like uh, Origin creeping up on that spot and other companies, they have to look at the diversity and how am I going to hold number one when I'm not offering anything really different. There's, there's a lot to be said for being able to be that one-stop shop. Even if it's within just one uh, you know, one product line. But if I have to go to somebody for architectural, somebody for custom with, you know, LCRs, somebody for outdoor, somebody for, you know, and, and just put it down the line, it becomes a challenge. It gets very complicated. So which is the same reason why they came out with 70 volt speakers. Yeah. You know, that they could do inside their their current build, but to really get into that custom, custom sizes, wood finishes. All of that wasn't their cup of tea. So they had to acquire somebody who was really good at that to be able to offer it. Very good. It will be fun to watch. All right, gentlemen, let's move on to our last story of the day. This comes to us from Dealer Scope. Uh, Cedia has a program to tackle next-gen workforce development. Joe, I'm so glad that you're here for this one. I, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, our friend Jason's point on this and his, his opinions and, and outlooks on this. But you are on the inside of this. You are working with Tommy uh, Tabor quite often dealing with workforce development and specifically this 12-week program. Joe, give us a, a quick insight because um, as I said, you've been working with uh, Tommy on this. You assisted and in, in, in instructed a couple of days of this course and you, you really have a pulse on it like no one else does other than maybe Tommy. Um, give us a quick overview of what the program is, how it's going to not only help uh, the, the people that are in the program, but also how it's that, that perspective that it's going to add to the industry going forward. Well, you know, it's a start to a longer, bigger, long-term solution. It's a problem I have. And I would say a large percentage of your listeners have the exact same problem. Um, you know, entry level employees are, they're very hard to find. It's almost impossible to have somebody that at least has the skill set to start successfully. And so CEDIA developed an entry level training program. And this is not the typical training programs that CEDIA does. This is not a two day boot, two or three day boot camp. It's mm -hmm. not a one day sit down in a classroom session. This is a 12-week program geared around probably the top three entry pieces that we know we would like our guys to come in. So you've got an OSHA certification, ESPA, and a, an EST, all in an environment that has classroom and hands-on for each portion of it, down to building racks, calibrating, uh, you know, minor calibration of sound and video, how all those things work together, distributed audio, distributed video, 
um, networking, all these things that they need some building blocks on before they would skill up and go farther, which is what workforce development is about. It's not just at the bottom, but this program was really built to, to handle, you know, all the integrators number one problem they're having. And that's bringing in these new people. Cause you can't move one of your guys up that you have right now, unless you have one to two people to take his place. Yeah. You can't grow your company and scale without a pathway of growth. So that's what the entire training program was about is to build a program to suit those needs and do it in a traditional trade uh, learning initiative where there's hands-on and education. And then I will say they went one step further and it is the first ever state approved by Indiana um, training for CEDIA that has ever happened. And that is huge for the history of what's going on. And the growth of that to other states is going to be amazing. So one of the things that I don't want to say is overlooked, but I, but I feel is maybe underpromoted, maybe not recognized as much, is what you just touched on. The fact that it's approved by the state. Obviously, we'd like to see it approved by more states and, and, and roll it out across the board. But just getting one and getting a program within the industry that is approved by the state for education. That means that not only does it open the doors to funding and all this other stuff, but talk for a minute about the legitimacy of having a, a, a CEDIA technician training that's approved by the state. It, it's, it's huge. It's, it's one of those, you know, you have that, you have the facility itself approved by the state and the entire class fits in the national workforce guidelines. It's a never before done before, but, but here's the deal, how that, that growth and what kind of legitimacy that lends in that now, you know, a local state government can finance the education of these people. They can get recognition, recognition of the state that that is, this is not, you know, a hobbyist career. You know, this is recognized for workforce growth, um, veterans administration, all the things that having that approval ties into have never been done in our industry and some of our adjacent industries um, even don't have that. It provides a legitimacy to not only our industry, but to what these guys do when they leave and become employees of a company. And I'll say kind of the really cool part, um, which was hoped for, of course, but once that class launched, you know, the, the, the prototype, the pilot, so to speak, you know, you had an over 50% pass rate across the board, SBE, EST, OSHA, the whole nine. You had two guys who already had jobs at about week eight. That's huge. That, that's huge. I mean, the, the, the pilot is not even done yet, and you're already at a 20 and 30% employment rate and a 50% pass rate. And That's I, nuts. And I think what might get kind of glossed over there is that 50% pass rate. And what people need to realize is that, if I'm reading this correctly, these are people off the street who have literally no idea about the industry, have never, it, it's not like there's someone coming in and taking training who's worked in the industry for six months. These are people off the street. 
That, that's straight huge. off the street, straight out of high school, straight out of being, you know, without a job and have never, never seen any of, any of this stuff before. And they're passionate about it. They're learning, they're growing. When I went and I, I uh, co-instructed the rack building class, I joked on social media after telling all the veterans that I've been teaching this rack building course at Cedia for three years that, hey, I hate to say these guys are faster than you. They're doing a better job than you in the class. You better watch out because these rookies are coming to get you. It was really impressive. And, and the way they're retaining this knowledge and applying it in kind of that real world scenario, uh, there's a great video that if people haven't seen it um, about this program that Cedia put out, you should watch it if you haven't. They'll be playing it at um, the Cedia Social here at Expo. And you can watch these guys learning, but you also listen to them. Because I talked about how, you know, I had to make these mistakes in the field for years. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I had my failures and my failures were in the field. And these guys are doing it in, in a controlled environment, in the sandbox, learning these mistakes, not taking away from what could potentially happen with a client or something that could fall back on a, on a business owner. I mean, those implications are, those are things that we've never seen at Cedia that are going to continue to grow into the higher levels of training and certification. Very good. Uh, Jason, this is something that we've seen dramatically across the, the industry where there has been a, an, incredibly an incredible challenge bringing in uh, trained workforce, finding personnel, finding people from not only an, an experienced uh, technical level, but also just an entry level uh, situation. It's the the workforce aspect of our industry has been very very difficult to deal with. Um, Cedia obviously is looking to tackle that and has launched this pilot program. Um, when you when you see this, when you follow this, obviously this is needed, and there's uh, a, a lot of push to to help uh, integrators and manufacturers find talent and and cultivate talent what does this program say to you what what does this look like going forward mm -hmm. yeah first of all i want to say i am a big big fan of what cd is doing here this is like the number one uh, issue that comes across in pretty much every survey that's done across the industry both formal and informal conversations that i've been a part of have always alluded to this middle skills gap or this labor shortage and, you know, by the way, it's not unique to our industry. Like this, this middle skills gap is a, an issue that plagues uh, multiple, multiple industries. And I think it really is one of the big things that Cedia can do uh, as an organization to really help the industry. There's always conversations going on, ongoing, as you would expect, about what is Cedia's role and what is Cedia's job in terms of, of pushing the industry forward. And I personally can't think of a higher calling uh, than to go out and tackle uh, the labor shortage. It is a big, big endemic problem, both for integrators and, of course, for manufacturers who want to uh, drive more throughput through the channel. And so ultimately, a big fan of this initiative. I think, you know, some of the most interesting aspects of it is how Cedia decided to really start small in Indiana and go through this process and figure out uh, how to get that state uh, certification, so occupational skills training approval uh, from the state of Indiana. And this really my understanding. I've had a chance to chat with uh, with Giles, the VP of Industry Engagement, Giles Sutton over there about this. And, you know, he was telling me that this is a big deal for them to get that certification from Indiana really helps establish credibility and it helps get them on the map of various programs and things that they can, they can now do with that certification to go help their graduates find jobs. Um, and they're hoping to roll this out nationally. And so my big question 
uh, continues to be, you know, how scalable is that? Are those requirements from Indiana very different or very similar to other states? I really don't know. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see if this becomes kind of a state-by-state -state ground game where they have to go or if it starts to, you know, pick up momentum and really becomes a flywheel where they can go from maybe one state to five to 15 and up. Uh, and so how it scales is the big question. Um, but philosophically, a big, big fan of what they're doing here. You know, it, it's it's something where, and, and again, if you are unaware, I'm not American and don't live in the U.S. Uh, it, it's it's always interesting for me to watch and, and realize how different things and regulations are state to state uh, versus Canada, where, you know, federally, a lot of those things are, are mandated from, from the federal level. And obviously in the U.S., the, the states have a little bit more power. Um, my, my biggest takeaway with this is the, 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 the state um, recognize, um, recognition of this. Because again, it, it, it legitimizes the industry. And it's not just another training and another piece of paper that means something within the industry, but doesn't mean anything with, uh, beyond the industry. And I think, um, you know, that's, that's really the biggest thing. And, and again, Jason, you hit on that very well, that it's, it's important to see, A, how this scales, but B, the fact that it is a, a state-approved program is huge. Yeah. And, and there, you know, there are, are funding implications to that too, as I understand it. And yeah, I'm definitely not the person to speak to the details, but uh, as Giles explained it to me, that, that certification is a big part of getting these sorts of programs funded. Um, and so anyways, talking to folks at the organization, I just get the sense that they're, they're asking the right questions and they're thinking about this the right way in terms of let's start small, let's figure out how to do this uh, in one state, and then let's go scale it up. Um, and it's very exciting. All right, gentlemen, that is all the time we have. Uh, one last note just before uh, we let you go and let you figure out where to connect with these two gentlemen. Uh, CDO Board of Directors voting will open uh, tomorrow uh, or, or yesterday, depending on when you see this. Um, there are a bunch of good people who are on the ballot for that, uh, I believe, including myself. So if you get a chance, uh, check that out. Joe is not on the ballot this year. He has got one more year left, uh, but we are continuing to you know, work very hard, including doing stuff like the uh, uh, electronic systems integration technician training that Joe talked about. Uh, we're working through a lot of really good stuff on the board. So please, uh, whether you vote for me or not, get out and, and vote for your board and make sure that the direction that you want to see the industry go is reflected in that board membership. So go do that. You can do that uh, on the CDO websites and at the show while you're there, if you'd like. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much. Uh, that, that does it for our time today. Uh, Jason, if people want to connect with you, learn more about One Vision Resources and visit you guys on the show floor, where can they do that? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again for having me, Matt. I really appreciate it. If anyone wants to connect, uh, just search for Jason Griffin on LinkedIn. Pretty active there. Uh, if you want to learn more about One Vision Resources, head over to onevisionresources.com. Uh, our, our goal really is to help integrators kind of work with, with service and make it a more streamlined, efficient, and profitable uh, part of their business. We know that's a very big challenge. So we'll be talking all about that out at Cedia in booth 2561. Again, that's 2561. And if you're out at Cedia, come by and say hi. We'd love to see you. Thanks again, Matt. Thank you so much for being here. Joe, if people want to connect with you, learn more about thoughtful integrations, uh, where can they do that? 
You can always find us on Facebook at Thoughtful Integrations, on Twitter at Integrator Tweets, and you can always find me at Cedia, like I am right now. Excellent. Uh, thanks again, gentlemen, for joining me. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on Twitter at Matt D. Scott. But more importantly, please visit avnation.tv where you'll find this show as well as a wide variety of our other shows with all the verticals that we cover. When you visit the website, please take a moment to check out our supporters. We are extremely thankful for their support and ask that you support them as well. Thanks again for watching. That's all the time we have for this episode of Resi Week. 